0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns, with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn, you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, assalamu assalamualaikum. Welcome to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. Um, just a heads up before we get into the content for this episode, my voice is just going to sound like this for the rest of the episode. Um, hay fever this season has been particularly bad and triggering for my hay fever, so my sinuses are just constantly blocked up. So apologies, this is what I'm going to sound like for the rest of the episode, but um, please bear with. Uh, before I get into the content for this week, I kind of just wanted to share something that happened to me with y'all, And um, I'm not going to mention the service by name, um, but I reached out to this service um, and was you know hoping for full support um as this access as a support service um described like on their website and even when I called them they kind of ex- uh explained what their process is like what they do righty righty right and I was like after hearing that I was like okay this sounds amazing this is kind of what I'm looking for, you know, slash what I'm hoping for and then and then you know, we actually get around to using the service in the sense that we uh interact with uh people from the service and you know, they do their job as was described on the website, as was um described on the phone call, but the reality of engaging with the service um it was horrible like we were completely completely minimized um not understood um like you can tell that there wasn't it just wasn't culturally safe and unfortunately you know This is not the first time that it's happened, and it won't be the last. Um, I think anyone who isn't part of the majority um, probably has some kind of experience where they, they weren't completely seen as a person, you know, for their culture, for their values, for, you know their ethnicity, their abilities for, you know, who they, for their sexual identity, their gender identity. Like, you know, there are so many other ways that we can exist in this world. Um, but if you are not part of the majority, in general, it's hard. it's services don't really take that fullness and the diversity of that fullness into consideration like after this interaction with the service i felt completely enraged to be honest because it to be honest it was culturally unsafe and the things that these people said the way that they said it um the assumptions that were made the the way that the service was provided like even what we actually experienced compared to what was explained to me over the phone and what I read on the website did not match up um because we were you know minimized and lots of assumptions were made about the migrant experience about our cultural values um even just our age actually um because we were part of the younger generation these days um we were blowing things out of proportion and didn't really understand what was going on so kind of implying you know it was like the boy who cried wolf and we called for the service um inappropriately because they weren't needed there which was not the case and it just reflecting on that experience just made me realize that's what it's like in general if you're not part of the majority like all of these systems and services that you know technically should be there for every New Zealand New Zealander to access the all the doors aren't open for everyone and it's kind of like you're trapped in this maze and to get out you just need to open the right doors but if you're not part of the majority those doors are really really hard to find and if we're really running with this metaphor you know if you do find those doors the the key is missing to the lock, or that door is just broken, like, it's just not functional anymore, so you can't open that door, like, it's an option, but you just can't open it, it's not open for you, that's what it feels like, kind of navigating the system as someone who's not part of the majority, and this is, you know, what happens when things and processes and systems are designed to meet the needs of the majority rather than, you know, honoring the diversity that is within our country. And it makes no sense. And, you know, I think this is also one of the reasons why, um, well, this is me just speaking for like my own experience and like what I have seen and observed um in like my time and my culture um and I after I was kind of like reflecting on this experience I realized that there was a moment where I had this intense anger this intense anger that just I didn't come out of nowhere I think it specifically came from the place knowing that you know the these people that we interacted with never ever had the training did not have the knowledge did not even want to have the insight to be open-minded they most definitely spoke from their limited world view um and you know this, this anger specifically came from that place and I think that anger also came from the fact that you know this if we think about the world that we live in as a contract, you know, we unknowingly signed this social uh contract and I felt like this contract had been broken, and it was broken for me because I'm not part of the majority and I think if you have privilege you know part of having that privilege is knowing that this contract that that we unknowingly sign will never ever be broken, and that contract will always be honored for you um But for me, as a black Muslim woman who is a first-generation migrant, at that particular moment, that contract was broken for me. And I absolutely felt, you know, that anger, but also felt this specific betrayal because all I ever expect and want is, you know... It's okay if you don't understand or know everything, but to come in with empathy, curiosity, questions, and an open mind rather than coming from judgment, being very close-minded, and, you know, from a short assessment, seeing that it doesn't fit into the normal narrative, then to just dismiss it um, and discard me to the side that's exactly what it felt like um because in my mind this is this uh contract of you know you you're a law abiding citizen you know like you pay your dues and we'll pay ours and you know i feel like i've paid my dues in that moment though those dues were not paid to me um, and I think also when I was reflecting on this anger, um, it made me think about, um, last year, you know, when the Black Lives Matter movement really, really took off, um, it was a conversation that everyone was having, and there was a sense of urgency for change, and, Uh, one thing that I saw swirling around a lot um, in real life, but also in person was, you know, comments about anger. And, oh my gosh, like, okay, you know, and the comments on anger kind of ranged. And, you know, one end of the spectrum was, oh my God, like, I I get it. Like, I understand why um, people are angry, but do they have to be violent? Like, that makes no sense and you know to the other end of the spectrum where it's like um there's no need to be angry about this we just need to have rational conversations about the issue at hand and um you know like wherever you land in that spe- there were opinions in between but Yeah, reflecting on my anger made me realize comments like that aren't actually helpful because if you're kind of saying comments like that, then you clearly have never experienced the sting of being someone who isn't part of the majority, right? Because when you're part of the majority, the world fits around you. The world will accommodate your needs. But if you are not part of the majority... You know, you have to fit yourself around this world, and the fact that it's that way and not the other way around, you know, you will always, mostly, always be honored. This, you, this privilege will ensure that this social contract that we sign will never ever be dishonored for you, and um, when that contract is broken time and time again when you know you're you're following you know quote unquote following the rules whatever that may look like it makes you angry it takes away um a sense of trust it takes away um the hope that things will change and it's a very sharp realization that when the social contract is broken and broken without any thought without any just just so casually just so um prevalent just done in a manner which definitely you know makes you feel like an afterthought um when it's done in a manner like that you know definitely makes you angry and that anger um it's justified absolutely justified which is why i think i'm i really dislike that angry black woman trope or it doesn't even have to be um angry black woman i think this anger label is kind of when it's put on um mm, marginalized people it makes me so annoyed like when Waj was on the, um, show a couple of months ago and she was talking about how when she was speaking at a rally, um, uh, speaking for the rights of, um, Palestinian people, she, you know, she said lots of, um, very moving, empowering things, but what the media picked up on was the fact that she said, I'm an angry Arab woman, um, um, and anger and violence just so closely follows um you know black people it follows muslim people it follows our tangata whenua it follows our women like you know all of these identities that are not the the one with the power and the privilege you know this anger is just assigned so quickly even if it's And also, this anger is assigned for any kind of behavior that kind of challenges the norm, um, which is its whole other thing. But when this um, anger label is put or associated with um, marginalized people, it then kind of reduces that pain. It reduces the... I'm going to struggle with saying this word. I already know this. It reduces the legitimacy of... uh, That sounded all right, but let me know if I said it wrong. You know, it reduces the legitimacy of the issue at hand, which therefore moves away from the conversations around, well, what does this mean? Unpacking where it's coming, the anger is coming from, unpacking the issue at hand. It's just simply reduced to angry you know blank blank and you can always fill in the blank blank with whatever um it just reduce, reduces it down to angry blank blank and um after my time with the service um i we've phoned the service immediately afterwards to get some clarification and to provide some feedback. And, um, you know, this the lady that we were talking to on the phone. She didn't directly say like, you was mad. She didn't directly say that, but you could tell that she was just trying to minimize our feelings, thoughts, and feedback as something something based on being emotional um she didn't say anger directly but you know the similar lines of you know you're angry and using that anger to minimize the actual issue at hand and um you know you could tell that she was just kind of thinking well um you're overly emotional right now minimizing the actual feedback that we had um and so that phone call actually was not helpful and just made me um more angry and um I so what I collected my thoughts I collected my calm really thought about it um and sent an email low-key turned out to be a bit of a novel but I really wanted to make my points very clear um and now I'm just kind of awaiting to see um how they respond to this feedback um but I I did put it in my feedback that you know our emotions were reduced and the phone call it was very clear that you know this the lady that we were talking to was just not having it, um, and she was really trying to justify the way that she treated us by putting it on us and and making it out as if, you know, we were just being super emotional about it. So, yeah, that was just a really um, interesting experience that I had, and I just wanted to talk about it on the show because, you know, it's something that I won't be the... F- first I'm not the first person to experience this and unfortunately I won't be the last um, but I just kind of wanted to explain that you know if people are angry it is um, coming from a very very legitimate place and you know their anger should not be dismissed or whatever emotion it is it doesn't even have to be anger but like it doesn't have to it shouldn't be dismissed because whatever the emotion or emotions may be it's coming from a place of well this contract has been um broken and dishonored and no one seems to care about that um no one seems to care about that and when i say no one seems to care about that i mean like our society in general for allowing this or enabling this social contract to continually be broken um and keep getting continuously broken at all levels, like it's not just um at a social level, you know whenever someone is casually racist contract broken whenever the system um doesn't fit for you or make room for you or mold around you social contract broken like this contract is broken on so many levels all the time um on a continual basis and you know when this contract is broken over time it does make you angry among other things because you're basically being told that you're a second-class citizen um and so whatever emotions people may have it is very valid and we should be making room for those emotions um And so, you know, this is kind of my response to people who say things along the lines of, oh, well, why are they so violent? Why are they so angry? We just need to be rational about this. Um, Let people be whatever they want to be in this space, because if you're saying comments like that, the uh, contract has clearly never, ever been broken for you. Um, So instead of comments like that you know we should be making comments that allow space for those emotions and kind of working through those emotions to get to the other side you know i think the way that i personally think about emotions is that they demand to be felt um and to work through your emotions you need to get through your emotions um So we need to make rooms for emotions, especially when we're talking about changing systems. Uh, It seems like they don't belong together, but systems and emotions do. We listen to whatever people are feeling to kind of shape what our system is going to look like, because it's not data or facts that interact with the system, um, it's people. And people have emotions. Um, and speaking of emotions, that actually reminds me of a really heartbreaking video that I, that, um, I saw circulating around on social media and, um, it was this, um, young woman who went shopping at farmers somewhere up north I can't really remember the specific city but somewhere up north um she went shopping with her cousin to get something for her mother for Christmas and um she was walking around the store and the shop assistant um you know was following her and obviously thinking that she um had stolen something or was about to steal something because she was hovering you know I made comments of well do you need help and I could be remembering this incorrectly but like asked her to leave the store perhaps um and called her undesirable and you know you're saying this to you know she looked young she looked like she was you know between the ages of 12 to 15 she told, this shop assistant told a 12 to 15 year old young um, Māori woman to, told this young Māori woman that she was um, undesirable. And, you know, in the video you could just see how much pain she was carrying. This, um, he was just, um crying and and so much pain and it was so visible and it was actually really really hard to watch because I think it definitely you know on a personal level reminded me of moments where I felt like that um but also use I think I haven't or well, I think lots of things. I was almost about to say I haven't had an experience like that in a long time. Um, I probably have. What has happened is I have changed as a person now. But when I was younger, stuff like that made me feel horrible. And I carried, put that on me for such a long time. And, you know, I thought that there was something wrong with me. And I wasn't wanted and... um yeah it really manifested into something so painful and evil and traumatic like it really weighed down on my mental health um you know because you're basically telling people that you're um well this in this late in this um case you know she was told directly that she was undesirable um but you know, you're being told that you're unloved and unwanted and you'll never belong or fit in this world. That is exactly what it feels like. So, um, I really, when I watched that video, it just, yeah, was painfully reminded me of that time in my life where comments like that really just affected me on a soul level, um, and I think people don't think about that, they don't think about the pain that it does to one person's, um, sense of self, their, the way that they value themselves in this world, um, I don't think people think about that, because I hope for who, you know, that shop assistant, if, whoever said that, anyway, I hope they're having that realization that words like that are very, very damaging, and, you know, casual racism still exists, but I think the conversations that we are generally having these days, it's coming from that space of, um, it's coming from that space of systemic or institutionalized racism and all the bigger picture thinking, wider stuff. Um, and I think we've kind of forgotten that Mm -hmm. this, um, day to day casual racism, it still very much happens. And it's heartbreaking because you're telling a young person, who already has so much stuff to figure out, you're telling them that you are not wanted, um, so it was just really painful to to watch that video, um, yeah, it was a very painful reminder, and, um, you know, to that young woman, I'm just, like, sending you all my love, and, you know, letting, and telling you that you should um find your source of strength in who you are, because once you're anchored by who you are, people can say stuff like that, and it might rock the boat, but it won't um question it won't make you question who you are and your worth in this world um so anchor yourself to you know to to who you truly are to that goodness um But it's hard work. It sounds really waffly and happy and incredibly empowering. But it's actually really, really hard work. (laughs) It's really, really hard work to do that. Um, And behavior like that doesn't make it easier for people to do that level of work. Um, So we should be kinder to each other. Which sounds silly to say out loud. But we honestly really should. Um, and the fact that that woman or man, whoever the shop assistant was, or, or they who, you know, whatever they thought was okay in their minds to say something like that, um, absolutely shocking. And I hope they're unlearning a lot of stuff and learning, um, new stuff and to replace that old knowledge because, you know whatever attitudes moral beliefs and values they have it that comments like that passed by without question um and i hope that most people have the thought process um where even if they were to formulate something horrible like that in their heads that they would be able to catch themselves um unfortunately this person wasn't but um and it, and the result is some uh, really traumatized um, rangatahi who will now have to do the work to kind of heal themselves and unpack the pain, which is horrible, which is honestly horrible. And if you have to hear something like that rather than he- hear a story like that and understand, you know, that's that's privilege and power right there um and the next thing that i wanted to talk about well it's been a big week um was the passing of bell hooks and i was my friend messaged me she was like oh um bell hooks has passed away and that and that's how i heard about it um very 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 sad day because, you know, she was so unapologetically herself, and, you know, very active in these race and social theories, um, but didn't, um, but chose to write books in a way that just the general population would understand and chose to also bring herself and her experiences into her writing as well which i think um at the time was just so um novel uh because you know when you're writing where you're working in that kind of space if it was in the academic sense, it was very, very academic. And we all know that academics are not accessible to the general public. Um, it often uses languages, a language or a level of English language that is not accessible, um, which makes it seem as if it's irrelevant. And then so to for her to say if that to academics and to write in a way where everyone could understand but then to also bring herself into it there is another level of vulnerability um that I think is amazing because it makes it more real when someone brings the experiences into it it contextualizes it in a way um that it, it's hard to replace or it's hard to find other things that contextualizes it in the same way as someone bringing their own experiences into it she wrote about intersectionality before it was even coined as a phrase the way that she wrote about feminism um it was amazing it really challenged the ideal of this the norm or the default of white feminism um and she really challenged people to think about the intersectionality of our identities even the way that she thought of um feminism i thought was very um open-minded and challenging to the um thought process at that time and i just wanted to read a quote that kind of um that kind of highlights that um she really challenged the idea that feminism is a movement that seeks to make women equal or equals of men and you know she asked the question of well You know what of which men women are trying to make themselves the equals of, and um, the idea that when we're thinking about what kind of men we want to make ourselves the equals of, it fails to attend to the inequalities between men enforced by the systems of white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy. So, kind of acknowledging the uh, the roles of um class and um race as well as gender as well because you know is it better to be the social equal of a uh, black man or a white man um and you know it's very obvious on so many levels that you know, white men have more power and privilege than a black man does, um, so she was very, very visionary in the sense that she forced people to think about the inter- intersectionality of people's identities and life experiences and power and privilege, um, and she also wrote a lot about love and and self-love and forgiveness and uh she was amazing this this one quote um also really resonated with me um one of the best guides to how to be self-loving is to give ourselves the love we are often dreaming about receiving from others there was a time when i felt lazy about my over 40 body saw myself as too fat to this or to that Yet I fantasized about finding a lover who would give me the gift of being loved as I am. It is silly, isn't it, that I would dream of someone else offering to me the acceptance and affirmation I was withholding from myself. There was a moment when the maximum, you can never love anybody if you are unable to love yourself, made clear sense. And I add, do not expect to receive the love from someone else you do not give to yourself um what like what (laughs) um she is yeah she was an amazing amazing woman and this is one other quote as well which is something that I also hope for and I um I hope we can come to a come to this kind of place as a society um and this is how it goes I want there to be a place in the world where people can engage in one another's differences in a way that is redemptive, full of hope and possibility. Not this, in order to love you, I must make you something else. That's what domination is all about. That in order to be close to you, I must possess you, remake you and recast you. Um... And that is very true, right? Like, even in my own personal experience, I didn't think I would go anywhere in life um, if I didn't assimilate to, you know, whatever white Aotearoa looks like. Um, I just didn't think that was um, an option for me. So to have Belle kind of put it into words like that um I was like yes that is exactly what I'm hoping for because if we can engage that in a way that is full of hope and possibility doesn't it make you think we're going to land in a place where we honor everyone's diversity and use that as a jumping board to get to have better conversations and to make the world a better place rather than using you know this diversity becoming a bad thing and you know making room for only one and if you don't fit into that one then I'm sorry you just have to be remade and recast um so yeah she wrote I think over 40 books surely must be over 40 books in her lifetime and they range from talking about feminism to intersectionality to love um to modern love and relationships and um talking about how what it's like to uh, wrote books about what it's like to be um a woman um talking about art the function of art um all sorts of things race um politics all sorts, um, and, you know, it's very sad that she's passed away, but her work, her work will always live on, her words will always live on, and the legacy that she's left behind, um, powerful, powerful black feminist who, wrote so many books that a lot of people have read and it's opened doors for them. Um, you know, she's, she's done the work and we're better off because of it. And forever more will always be better off because her work will live on. And so I admire her for her vulnerability and you know, the fact that she stuck to her values, no matter what, like very brave, woman you know when Beyonce came out with her um visionary album Lemonade you know she was very honest about her thoughts and you know she thought it was um money making I can't remember the exact words that she um used but you know wasn't a fan of Lemonade thought it was a money making scheme she said some other stuff too and like that's bold she's saying something against not only the beehive the beyonce fans but there was a lot of um other black feminist um you know black feminist writers and um artists and um what do you call people who just like write essays like not books but like not like a col columnist anyways the word will come to me after i've written this uh, after i've posted this i'm i'm sure it will but a a lot of people were actually just like well isn't it you being anti-feminist yourself right now for um putting bringing down another woman like a lot of people gave her a lot of heat and press for it um and after the 9-11 attacks she wrote oh she said a speech and was very open um about calling out um white supremacy calling out racism um and you know, she was met with booze, you know, because it was at a time where I think that American identity was under threat, and who um, was an American that was under threat, and you know, when things like that are under threat, you usually stick with you know what you know because in times of fear what you know is comfort and what we know is you know white america so she was met with booze but she still said what she said um and she was also very vulnerable and open about her life um she didn't have an easy life um sound like she had a very difficult um upbringing um and she didn't shy away from that and um the fact that she chose not to write in an academic sense but to engage people like real life people in her work um amazing so a lot of respect for her and very sad that she has passed but I'm glad that her work will always always live on because honestly what a queen what a queen even if you don't agree with everything that she has written um very visionary and opened doors for a lot of people and still does so yeah, what a queen and the last thing that I kind of want to spend some time talking about um this episode is this this idea of whiteness and the reason why I want to talk about this is um I was catching up with one of my friends recently and she was saying how she um was called out for being a racist against um white people um you know someone called her out and said you know you're being you're being such a racist against white people right now um and all she did was say like white people she just clearly spelled it out um but whoever she was talking to was like well you're being racist for calling white people white people like you're the one who's being racist now and you know we had a conversation around it and we were unpacking it and it actually got to a really interesting place because, you know, you're asking the question of is um, white a race to begin with? Is it a race or is it just a social construct? Um, is, you know, with this whiteness thing is it have does it hold any weight if it's a group identity um is it a political weapon is it um you know and then we had conversations around well can you be racist to a group that very much holds the most the most of the power and privilege um can can you actually be racist towards um white people and you know all of these questions are very complicated and i'm not going to unpack it all within the next 10 minutes i think that's impossible that would be impossible to unpack it within the next 10 minutes um but What I'm trying to say is to, in order to even begin having those conversations, um, to even answer those questions, I think it's really important to look back before we look forward and kind of looking at the history of, you know, whiteness, look at the history of what quote unquote white people, what white race what white culture looks like because you know sometimes we do joke about it we we have jokes around white people culture and its things like you know um i don't know see even i'm struggling to kind of come up with things um you know maybe listening to to indie music maybe that could be one thing see like even that just sounds so strange um and I've had this conversation with some of my white friends like and they've also really struggled um to kind of put into words what um white culture is what it may look like um is that Framing of white culture is that even like the right way to think about to think about it the same way how i was kind of questioning what black culture is in the last episode um and i've even had you know comments from my white friend saying like well we actually we don't have a culture and i like wish i had a culture like you, because you have very defined, like, language and food and traditions and practices and worldview, blah, 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 like, you have all these things, but I, like, don't have anything, and it's all, yeah, it's so strange when, when you, have comments like that like you know I'm very desperate to have a culture but this whole world is kind of steeped in this whiteness um and you know for a white person to be like well I don't see color it's kind of hard to ignore the skin that you have when you're interacting with this world when the norm is whiteness um and I think it's really important to also look at the history because it's very interesting, you know, who has been considered white in the past and how that label has kind of expanded to include groups that weren't um, originally there, which is very, very interesting. And I think... um, The idea of whiteness really, really came around when slavery, um, happened and, um, you need, need to look at that, um, fact that religious identity was really really important for the development of slave trade and this kind of eventually developed into racial um whiteness so you know in the early 17th century um plantation owners relied on the labour of um relied on the labour of slaves And they, these servants were, did not have a great life. They were treated horribly, um, but they had this one, one privilege, or they were really favorably looked upon in one way. And that was their religious identity. They were Christian. And so because they were Christian, they could not be held in captivity for a long time because they weren't criminals and they weren't prisoners of war. Um, And so, you know, slaves from Africa were considered infidels because they were enemies of the Christian nation um, because they weren't Christians. And so this made it very, very legal, unfortunately, to hold them as slaves. And so they were very... Because of this weird dynamic between being treated well because you're a christian um plantation owners at the time were very aware of that and were uh, scared of uprisings and there was um once that kind of made those fears very concrete and very real so there was a rebellion um bacon's rebellion in 1676 um and it saw europeans fighting side-by-side with free, um, Africans, enslaved Africans against the government. And so plantation owners, you know, initially their protection was giving their Christian servants the legal privileges and those legal privileges were not available to, um, enslaved Africans and so this this there was a law made the 1681 servant act in jamaica um and it was later used in other places which described the privileged class as whites but not christians and this kind of um very subtle but very clear, um, boundary between whites and Christians made it very okay and very legal for slaves to be treated the way, um, they were because they were no longer afforded the, the protection of that Christian label. And it made that treatment, that horrible treatment, very, um, very legal, and and permissible, which is so strange, and so then you kind of move into the space where this idea of whiteness was used to um, make slavery legitimate, and then this idea of whiteness used in... used in... in politics, and it was very interesting after the second uh world war because you know here you have jewish people being labeled as a scapegoat and because they were the scapegoat this horrible horrible behavior was just um it, it's not even horrible behavior it was genocide and it was abuse it was completely a-okayed because the nazi regime had made these clear labels and jewish people were labeled in such way behavior like that was allowed and so i think this whiteness um kind of disintegrated this idea of white as a race disintegrated right um because people were still reeling from the this atrocious Um, abuse and violence but it became more insidious and less government enforced um, but turned into more of a social and political weapon which felt like it went away because at that time um, the racial color blindness um, theory rhetoric was swirling around and on the back of world war to um it was just the label of white it wasn't said as loud and proud and I've just kind of noticed the time and where we're going so I think I'm going to pick this up in the next episode um uh, yeah I'm going to pick this up in the next episode um but yeah kind of unpacking this whole thing you really need to understand the history um, to begin with, and I think not just with this, but with anything, um, to unpack anything, you generally need to look behind to kind of move forward, and time is not a linear thing, I think, like, as human, this is much just my personal theory, but as humans, we don't really understand how time works, and we think it's linear, but I feel like it's not, um, and so it's all connected somehow, um, so, to look backwards is to also look forward um, at the same time but anyways we'll we'll pick this conversation up for the next episode thanks for tuning in y'all and sorry again about my my voice it just it doesn't sound great thank you for tuning in into another episode of Headscarfs and good yarns to keep spinning the yarns let us know your thoughts you can find us on facebook and instagram at headscarfs and good yarns or email us at headscarfs and good yarn at gmail.com